This is episode number 17 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him or his administration. The liberal mainstream media has completely lost their minds. They clearly cannot be objective. And the conservative, as I refer to them now, state-run media has been compromised and totally co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Hope you've enjoyed the first 16 episodes. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this episode via social media. Over 11,000 Twitter followers have already followed us at individual number one pod. That's individual, the number one P-O-D. Please make sure if you're on Twitter that you join those. And uh, this has been an amazing week for Donald Trump. Probably, uh, and let's be clear, through none of his own doing. He did nothing remotely good this week. He did a lot of actually things that were clearly bad, said a lot of absurd things that would have gotten any other president in a whole lot of trouble. But because of circumstances beyond his control, and maybe just simply because, as Trump says, with me, it's just works, you know, it's magic. Maybe because of the Trump magic, the, the best week probably of Trump's presidency as far as the surrounding circumstances. Obviously, there was the Bill Barr summary that uh, allegedly exonerates him on collusion with Russia in the Mueller report. And while it doesn't exonerate him on obstruction, it decides that he will not be charged, uh, at least at first, and probably never, with obstruction of justice. I'll have some, obviously, some more thoughts on that as we go along in this particular episode. But that was maybe the biggest thing that happened uh, for Trump this week. And he clearly uh, took more than one victory lap, spiked the football more than once, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so, at least until that report uh, comes out in sometime in mid-April. Then Michael Avenatti, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels, who had an affair with Donald Trump, and then he paid her off during the election, the porn star Stormy Daniels. Michael Avenatti was arrested for extorting Nike. And uh, we'll see where that ends up going, but I'm sure uh, Trump was exceed. I- I'll bet Trump was more aroused by the arrest of Michael Avenatti than he was when Stormy Daniels took that magazine with his picture on the cover and slapped him on the ass with it. It was probably pretty close as to what aroused uh, Donald Trump more. Then, of course, there was the Jussie Smollett situation. Uh, Jussie Smollett let go in a classic uh, Chicago corruption situation, which, of course, fits right into the narrative that he is building and benefiting from, that liberals just cannot be trusted. They've lost their minds, and if they were to come into full power, all hell would break loose. So uh, I think that definitely helps Donald Trump. It also gives him the opportunity, to, and this was bizarre, he wants the FBI and the DOJ to investigate it from a federal perspective, which, of course, is hilarious because, according to Donald Trump, the FBI and the DOJ are corrupt, and the deep state is a bunch of uh, Hillary-loving liberals who are out to get him. So why in the world would they go after Jesse Smollett? But, uh, hey, look, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to use basic logic in a world that's turned upside down. 
And then, uh, and we will talk a lot about this in this episode, Joe Biden, the man who is clearly most well-suited to beat Donald Trump in 2020, is under full attack by liberals. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. The liberals are just completely so brilliant that they're going to get all over their own way. And it looks like uh, to me right now that there's a very good chance that they're going to elect Donald Trump. They might even subconsciously want Donald Trump elected. We know or reelected. We know that the media does. The media, at least subconsciously, if not consciously, desperately, as Donald Trump has said, needs Donald Trump reelected. There's no question about that. Correct. Because he is ratings. He is content. And that's what they crave far more than anything else. But we'll talk a lot about what's going on with Joe Biden uh, as we move along here. Now, I want to start, though, with this holding pattern with regard to the Mueller report. And this is just so strange. This whole thing is just so strange to me. And I, and I wrote a, a column that you can check out at uh, Free Speech Broadcasting or just Google it about this whole situation with regard uh, to Bill Barr's uh, four-page summary and how, although I think that narrative is slightly changing now that we've learned a little bit more about what's in the report, or not necessarily in the report, but that the fact that it's almost 400 pages and that eventually all or at least most of it will become public sometime in mid-April. By the way, does it take almost 400 pages to exonerate somebody? <laughs> Who, who's ever been exonerated by a 400-page uh, report on, on your campaign's behavior? I mean, uh, that just seems highly implausible to me that anyone uh, with an open and rational mind is going to end up reading the, I guess, 390-page or so Mueller report and go, yep, no problems, nothing to see here. Uh, this was this was all a witch hunt, and uh, nobody did anything wrong or anything problematic or anything unethical or anything that uh, shouldn't be repeated in the future. Yeah, I just don't believe that's going to happen. But we're in this bizarre holding pattern where this four-page summary has set the narrative. And even the so-called anti-Trump media has largely allowed that four-page summary to set the narrative. Now, is that the reason why the four-page summary was created? To set the narrative and then delay? I don't, I'm not quite that cynical. I'm not that conspiratorial. I know there are a lot of people, especially in the anti-Trump crowd, that, that do believe that, that something like that is true. I don't because, one, I'm not a conspiracy person. Two, it's clear that Robert Mueller is helping in this process. And, you know, a lot of people have said, and there's a lot of logic to this, that why would Mueller allow all this to happen if Barr was dramatically uh, mischaracterizing his conclusions in that four-page summary? And I understand that theory, that thinking. That makes sense, except that's not what... I personally am alleging is happening here. I'm suggesting that this is a shading, that this is taking a, a, a pile of poo. <laughs> well, maybe not a pile. We don't know if it's a pile of poo or if it's, it's a, a box of lemons. But it's the old, you know, is this the old taking lemons and making it into lemonade, uh, you know, or chicken crap and making chicken salad? So, you know, pick your own metaphor or your analogy. But it doesn't take much to shade this when you have something that's almost 400 pages and you reduce it down to basically less than four pages because a lot of the four pages is just a, 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 an introduction as to what the heck's going on. So it's not like it's four pages of conclusions and summaries of that 
of those conclusions and any real details of what's in the report. So uh, to me, what could easily be happening here, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating, that this phrase, not exonerated, is so broad, so vague, that you could drive a Mack truck through it. Correct. So by saying not exonerated, that covers virtually everything. So how could, let's pretend that, uh, you know, Barr is putting lipstick on a pig here. Uh, what would Barr, what would Mueller say? What, how, would, how would Mueller contradict, on what basis would he contradict Bill Barr's summary? Because that would be true. And no one's suggesting that um, Mueller actually recommended that Trump be indicted for obstruction of justice. And then Barr is pretending that didn't happen. And then th- that he made the decision on his own. Or, you know, th- that would be that would be obviously something Mueller could say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what happened here. But with regard to the, the characterizing the findings, that's incredibly easy to shade in the direction that you want to shade it. Like, for instance, your boss, the same boss who your son-in-law works directly for, the guy who picked you out of mothballs because you wrote a 19-page memo saying that a president can't be charged with obstruction of justice under circumstances similar to what it looks like was happening with regard to the Mueller report. And let me just make one thing very clear, and I don't want to you know, overdo this because I've talked about it before. I wrote about it for Mediate, and I'm sure we'll talk about this again once the actual report is is released to the public. But the bottom line on this this very strange obstruction of justice philosophy that Bill Barr has is that it appears he's saying that if a president of the United States is successful enough at obstructing justice, that an underlying serious crime can't be proven then therefore it cannot be obstruction of justice. And and that's people that is incredibly dangerous. That that to me is just flat out ridiculous. Because if that is the fact the rule, then a president of the United States especially with his pardon power and his ability to hire and fire and his his enormous bully pulpit, if a president of the United States cannot obstruct justice unless an underlying crime that is serious is found that he's obstructing or she's obstructing, then obstruction is then legal. Just as long as you do it well enough to make sure that there's no proof enough of a crime. And we still don't know. Did Mueller find no evidence of collusion? I find that impossible. Or did he just not find enough evidence of collusion to reach the standard of proof and the, and the threshold here? That's a scenario that makes a lot more sense to me. But I think this, this obstruction philosophy is incredibly dangerous, incredibly important, and totally bizarre. And, uh, you know, while I'm open to changing my mind based upon what's in the Mueller report, I find it very hard to believe that that's what's going to happen, especially since we now learned that it's almost 400 pages. So we'll find out, I guess, more in mid-April. I, you know, it'll be fascinating to me to see, okay, when the Mueller report comes out in its entirety or close to its entirety, is this going to be a resetting of the narrative or is the narrative now so set in stone that nothing can change it? I'm not sure about that because the, the polling numbers have not indicated any change at all. None. 
Uh, I mean, Trump's approval rating has basically gone up less than a half a point, and that's distorted because Rasmussen, you know, his favorite pollster now has him at around 50% or thereabouts. At least that's what it was last time I checked. And that's that's absurd. I mean, that, that, there's no way that uh, Donald Trump's approval rating is 50 percent uh, of the voting populace. And we do, we know that because we just had an election a few months ago and Democrats pounded Republicans uh, in a midterm when midterms have been a place where Republicans have done very, very well over the last couple of decades. But not this year, because one, there's a very unpopular president. And uh, two, Democrats were incredibly energized to get out to defeat that president. So this idea that his approval rating could be 50 percent. It's just flat out ridiculous. And and so, look, the bottom line is there's no evidence of any change. And there's no evidence, by the way, there's been a couple of polls that indicate that people haven't even changed their minds about the Russian investigation based upon the Bill Barr summary. So at least with the public, there's no evidence that this book is closed. Weirdly, there is some evidence among the media, even the left-wing media, that this book is closed. And that could be partially because they've seen a massive ratings drop in the uh, week or so, or just less, since uh, the Bill Barr summary came out. They've been riding this, this anticipation of the Mueller report for so very long, and now much of that has been dissipated before we've even seen one word of the actual report, which is, of course, very strange. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about how much Republicans and Trump have been spiking the football on this. And we get back to this issue so often on this podcast of trying to interpret the actions and the words of people who are not normal. Like normally, if Republicans and a president were uh, taking a victory lap this dramatically, you could be confident that there's no other shoe to drop. But with Trump and this Republican Party, which is effectively now his cult, you can't do that. And it was interesting to see what happened in the Intelligence Committee in, in the House of Representatives this week, where every single Republican called for the resignation of the Democratic chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Now, Adam Schiff is a congressman from here in Southern California. He's actually just a district or two uh, over from where I live. I, I believe he's the congressperson for my in-laws. And you know, from all I can tell is he seems like a pretty good guy. He seems pretty intelligent. And I have actually been fairly impressed with how he has handled the entire Russian investigation. While he has said some things ind- indicating that he believes there was collusion, which now looks bad because of the Bill Barr summary, by and large, with maybe a few exceptions, he hasn't gotten too far out of his skis on this. And he's been very substantive and I think very credible in what he has said. And he got attacked in the committee. Now, the call for his resignation because of a four-page summary that indicates there was no collusion with Russia, at least not the Russian government, uh, is absurd. And it's so absurd that it makes me think, okay, what's really going on here? Why are they going so far out of their way to attack Adam Schiff? Again, rationally, in a normal world, you'd say, oh, well, gosh, this must really be total exoneration, and he must really look like a jackass because uh, he was totally wrong about all this. Well, there's no way for them to know that because there's no indication they have seen the report. And so, therefore, 
I can only conclude that this is because they want to appeal to two entities, Donald Trump, their God, their king, and to the conservative media. So because the conservative media loves this spiking the football narrative, taking a victory lab, they want vengeance now, right? Because if, if you've been wronged in a witch hunt, you want vengeance on those who promoted the witch hunt. So they want some, at least uh, the attempt, or at least the, the appearance, of going after somebody who went after Trump. So these, these nine Republicans on the Intelligence Committee did exactly that. And in my view, they embarrassed themselves. Now, look, is it possible that the Mueller report will vindicate their uh, attacks on Adam Schiff? I guess so. And I'll be open-minded to that. But to me, I've seen no logic or evidence of that. And I don't think they have any logic or evidence either. I think this is a pure cult move. And it might even be more uh, incriminating than that. It could actually be an indication of them still fearing this report. Doesn't prove it, but it's consistent with they need to destroy an Adam Shift and his credibility because when the report comes out, Adam Shift is who the media is going to go to. So there's a clear motivation here on the part of Republicans to destroy Adam Schiff. And again, I want to make clear, that doesn't prove that what Schiff is saying is is true or untrue. But what it does do is it is consistent with a narrative that this isn't over yet. That there, there's, there's got to be a reason why they're trying to drive a stake through his heart. Because they're afraid he might still be alive. And if he's alive and he has two strong legs, this could still be a problem. That's, that's where I'm leaning on this. And I have to say that Schiff's response... And I, I, this is probably the first time maybe in my career that I've ever done this. Uh, I've had a very long radio and podcasting career. I don't think I've ever decided to just play unedited an exceedingly long clip from a Democrat. But that's where we are. Uh, because his response to the Republicans on that committee who went after him and said that he should resign because he was wrong about Russian collusion was classic. It was perfect. And it had the theme of, you might think it's okay that X, Y, or Z happened, but I don't. And when you listen to this, (laughs) I always talk about how the world is turned upside down. Shift sounds like a traditional Ronald Reagan Republican attacking Democrats for not getting it on Russia in general and the threats of a foreign adversary in particular. Or I, maybe I reversed that, but it, it, it threats of a foreign adversary in general and Russia in particular. But here was Adam Schiff's response to the Republicans on the Intelligence Committee calling for his resignation. My colleagues may think it's okay that the Russians offered dirt on a Democratic candidate for president as part of what was described as the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. You might think that's okay. My colleagues might think it's okay that when that was offered to the son of the president, who had a pivotal role in the campaign, that the president's son did not call the FBI. He did not adamantly refuse that foreign help. No, instead that son said that he would love the help of the Russians. You might think it's okay that he took that meeting 
You might think it's okay that Paul Manafort, the campaign chair, someone with great experience in running campaigns, also took that meeting. You might think it's okay that the president's son-in-law also took that meeting. You might think it's okay that they concealed it from the public. You might think it's okay that their only disappointment after that meeting was that the dirt they received on Hillary Clinton wasn't better. You might think that's okay. You might think it's okay that when it was discovered a year later that they lied about that meeting and said it was about adoptions. You might think it's okay that the president is reported to have helped dictate that lie. You might think that's okay. I don't. You might think it's okay that the campaign chairman of a presidential campaign would offer information about that campaign to a Russian oligarch in exchange for money or debt forgiveness. You might think that's okay. I don't. You might think it's okay that that campaign chairman offered polling data, campaign polling data to someone linked to Russian intelligence. I don't think that's okay. You might think it's okay that the president himself called on Russia to hack his opponent's emails if they were listening. You might think it's okay that later that day, in fact, the Russians attempted to hack a server affiliated with that campaign. I don't think that's okay. You might think that it's okay that the president's son-in-law sought to establish a secret back channel of communications with the Russians through a Russian diplomatic facility. I don't think that's okay. You might think it's okay that an associate of the president made direct contact with the GRU through Guccifer II and WikiLeaks and considered, that is considered a hostile intelligence agency. You might think that it's okay a senior campaign official was instructed to reach that associate and find out what that hostile intelligence agency had to say in terms of dirt on his opponent. You might think it's okay that the national security advisor designate secretly conferred with a Russian ambassador about undermining U.S. sanctions. And you might think it's okay he lied about it to the FBI. You might say that's all okay. You might say that's just what you need to do to win. But I don't think it's okay. I think it's immoral. I think it's unethical. I think it's unpatriotic. And yes, I think it's corrupt and evidence of collusion. Now, I have always said that the question of whether this amounts to proof of conspiracy was another matter. Whether the special counsel could prove beyond a reasonable doubt the proof of that crime would be up to the special counsel and I would accept his decision, and I do. He's a good and honorable man and he is a good prosecutor. But I do not think that conduct, criminal or not, is okay. And the day we do think that's okay is the day we will look back and say that is the day America lost its way. And I will tell you one more thing that is apropos of the hearing today. I don't think it's okay that during a presidential campaign, Mr. Trump sought the Kremlin's help to consummate a real estate deal in Moscow that would make him a fortune. According to the special counsel, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think it's okay that he concealed it from the public. I don't think it's okay that he advocated a new and more favorable policy towards the Russians even as he was seeking the Russians' help, the Kremlin's help to make money, 
I don't think it's okay that his attorney lied to our committee. There's a different word for that than collusion, and it's called compromise. Now, that went viral. That was uh, trending on Twitter. Uh, Schiff has gotten a lot of support from the public. I know he has extraordinary support within the Democratic caucus. I spoke with my good friend, Democratic uh, Congressman John Yarmouth, who's the chairman of the Budget Committee, and he indicated that to me yesterday. Uh, He and I had a very interesting and long conversation about this whole situation, which uh, at the end of which I went uh, in to see my wife and kids. And my wife immediately said to me, "Uh, who were you talking to? And I said, well, I was talking to John, John Yarmouth. And she says, oh, I I figured as such. I heard you were plotting against our president. (laughs) That she only said it half facetiously. (laughs) Which indicates that she does have a little bit of the the Trump virus. She's an interesting test case because I, because I'm married to her, I keep her in line, uh, and the virus doesn't usually get too far out of control. But with my in-laws, uh, her family, the virus is totally out of control because I only see them every once you know once in a while, and I can't keep it in control. Uh, but yeah, I guess we were kind of plotting, but not. <laughs> Not in any sort of illegal or unethical way, but maybe more about that uh, at some other point. Uh, So Schiff has a lot of support, and I do think that Schiff is going to be the person to look to, he and uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, once the Mueller report is out. You'll be able to tell a lot from their reactions. If they are outraged, if they are angry, if they are chomping at the bit to get in front of a television camera, then you'll know that this report really was bad and that Bill Barr did effectively a whitewash job. If they're not doing any of that, then uh, we'll have a very different situation. So just look at those two guys and you'll be able to tell an, an awful lot. But so far, I think Shift is right. And I think Shift paints a picture that is far more consistent with this idea that Mueller just couldn't get to the end zone. And that's something that I've been saying for a very long time. Whether or not collusion happened, how you define it, I've always been questioning that. But I've been very consistent in saying I don't think they're going to be able to prove it because it's an exceedingly difficult thing to prove, especially when the person at the center of it is the president of the United States and people are exceedingly hesitant to flip on him. So how would you prove it? He doesn't do email. His conversations weren't recorded. Uh, No one's flipping on him because he has the pardon power and he's the president of the United States. And these are all people who very much believe in him. So how would you prove it? You'd have to prove it with an underling who then flipped on Trump. And And the closest that that has come is Roger Stone and his relationship with WikiLeaks. Now, maybe Mueller is making a distinction between WikiLeaks and the Russian government and making a distinction between Roger Stone and the Trump campaign. Those are distinctions that I think are without a difference, but at least they're somewhat logical. They're giving Trump every possible benefit of the doubt. But Stone's not going to give up Trump. He's a true believer. He's Trump's longest political advisor. He's... You know, he's not going to live for much longer anyway. He wants this to be his legacy, that he stood up against the man on behalf of Donald Trump. So without that, how would you ever prove that Trump colluded with the Russian government? It's almost impossible, even if it did happen. And so that's really what shifts 
outlining there. That's his narrative. He's making the case that, wait a minute, this was a very legitimate investigation, even if it didn't prove Russian collusion. And by the way, thank goodness it didn't. <laughs> because, assuming that it didn't happen uh, and that we don't really have a Manchurian candidate as president, which I don't believe that we do. And I've said for many, for many, many months that I don't believe that we do. But that should be cause for celebration. It should also be uh, pointed out consistently that very much against Trump and a lot of Trump supporters, Mueller did conclude that, guess what? Yes, Russia did meddle in the 2016 election. And yes, it was on behalf of Donald Trump. So right there, Trump and his cronies were wrong. Correct. And in an important way. So this was not a hoax. This was not a witch hunt. And if it had been a witch hunt, guess what happened? Robert Mueller would have charged Donald Trump with obstruction. If he was out to get Donald Trump, he would have done that. Why didn't he? I don't know. Obviously, I need to see the report. But I'm beginning to think that what really happened here is that Mueller effectively blinked. That because it wasn't a witch hunt, and this might be, and underline might be, there's not enough information to come to a conclusion yet. But this might be another classic situation where because Trump has no ethics and is willing and able to do anything under the Al Davis, Oakland Raider philosophy of just win baby, that he ends up the victor in situations where other people would lose. And what I mean by that is this. You know, I I mentioned in the last podcast that he benefited in the 2016 election by claiming absurdly that the the system was rigged against him, that this election was rigged against him, and that because of that, there were conservatives like the Bush family who needed to stay on the sidelines and keep their powder dry during the campaign in case he lost a close election and didn't accept the results. And someone needed to be able to come in with their powder dry and say, stop it, knock it off, you lost the election. Hillary won. Let's move on. Well, in a similar way, this constant mantra of witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. Boy, I blew that. Witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. This constant refrain. I think it's possible that it had an an effect, even if it was only subconscious, on Robert Mueller. Because when you are being accused publicly by the president of the United States on a consistent basis that you're running a witch hunt, a, a normal especially a a fair and objective person, someone who who values their objectivity and their fairness, like every indication is that Robert Mueller does, that person is going to be impacted by that. That's not going to be something that that they ignore. You can't ignore that when it comes from the President of the United States. So if there's a judgment call to be made, it's like a referee, Right. If, if if a referee, that's why officials what you know get worked in basketball games. If you work an official in a basketball game, you might, in a judgment call, be able to guilt them into giving you one. Right? Well, in a similar way, that's what Trump did. He was working the referees for over a year, telling them that they're in the bag for the deep state, and this is a witch hunt, and you know, thirty-five angry Democrats or whatever number it was that day. And it's possible that on a judgment call, Mueller blinked and that he was afraid of being accused, not afraid because of his own personal reputation, but for the reputation of the special counsel's office and for the betterment of the country, he didn't think it was a good idea to make a leap on, for instance, an obstruction charge 
without having 100% evidence to do so. Maybe he felt the same way on collusion. Or maybe he felt like there was some reason philosophically like by why he shouldn't be the person making that decision, which a lot of people are confused by, including myself, because the whole purpose of the special counsel's office is to take that decision out of the hands of someone that the president appointed, like his own attorney general, Bill Barr. So that's my current theory on this, that Trump may have benefited from having worked the referees in the insidious and deceitful fashion in which he did. But I'll wait to see the whole report before uh, I make any uh, final conclusions on that, in case we still care, because, of course, our attention spans are so short that by mid-April, no one's going to give it to him anymore. We'll be we'll moved on to so many other things. There's another story out this week. I don't know how many this is, but it seems like it happens about once a month. The Washington Post has done some great reporting on how it is that Donald Trump inflated his wealth. We talked recently about a, a similar report involving Deutsche Bank and a loan that uh, Trump applied for. And that uh, this was back in 2005, where he claimed that his net worth was $3 billion, and they investigated it and found out that it was less than $800 million. Correct. Uh, and this is his own bank. This is Deutsche Bank. Well, the Washington Post found out some specifics uh, over the years of how Trump has done this, and it's blatant. I mean, it's just flat-out lying, where he'll claim that he has way more, like in California, he had a property, I, I think he inflated it by t claiming 24 extra properties that were valued in the next number of millions of dollars that did not exist. They did not exist. And so, so he, he's just making it up as he goes along. That's what he does. It's And, and, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care because that the truth has no value to him. In fact, he looks at the truth as a restriction that other people have that he doesn't have. So all he has to do is and he'll get away with it. He understands. Trump understands the nature of humanity and psychology of the average person exceedingly well. And he understands that the liar has an inherent advantage against the honest person because the honest person always presumes the other person they're dealing with is being honest. Well, if you, if you think about this as a race, if you lie first, you get a massive head start. And by the time they find out for sure that you've lied, oftentimes they won't be able to prove it because we in society still strangely have a very high threshold for proving that someone has lied. To me... You know, I'm a very honest person, and this has harmed me my whole life, but now I've figured it out. So now I presume everybody's lying, unless otherwise proven, because that's the way it works now. But people still, especially in the media, the media, I think, plays right into Trump's hands here. They are still so afraid to call out a lie until they've 100% proved it. I understand that, but Trump, being a very strange animal has been able to take advantage of this. He knows that when you lie, there's a good chance they'll never figure it out. And if they do, it'll be so down, far down the road that no one will care anymore. And that's what he has done throughout his entire life, including with his finances. And the Washington Post proved once again, he is a liar and he is not rich. 
Now, for a guy whose entire narrative is, I'm the super rich truth teller, you would think that that would have an impact because it goes right at the heart of who he supposedly is. Correct. But now he's president and his cult will never leave him because they think it's all fake news. Fake news, especially now post-Russia. At least allegedly post-Mueller and no Russian collusion. So the media has, you know, they already had very little credibility, especially among his cult, but they have zero credibility now. I love the poorly educated. Similar to the story about Trump uh, fabricating his wealth is a story that is out because of a new book involving Donald Trump and a, uh, a, a sport that's very near and dear to my heart, which is golf. I am a, a tournament golfer about a, a two handicap, although I should be better than that, but I'm getting old. But uh, I've been a tournament golfer for most of my life, played golf in college at Georgetown. And I am definitely in the category of people who believes that golf can tell you an awful lot about a person's character. And it tells you everything you need to know about Donald Trump. We already knew that in a, in a very similar way to it tells you everything you need to know about Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a cheater at golf. He was a uh, he had an obsession with taking what's called a mulligan in golf, where you basically forget that the first shot even counted and you do have a do over, which I think was a fascinating insight to Bill Clinton's psychology. He 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 just was able to think that okay and. This That didn't really happen. That bad shot didn't happen. I'm going to pretend that my second shot is the one that counts. I actually witnessed Bill Clinton lying about this at the opening of the Tiger Woods Learning Center in Anaheim, California several years ago. And I knew he was lying because I was looking right at Tiger Woods when he told the story of how he beat Tiger Woods on a hole the day before. And I said, there's no way. There is no way because if that was happening, Tiger would have been laughing his ass off. But Tiger was not look, laughing his ass off. Tiger uh, was uh, giving a almost a death glare <laughs> at Bill Clinton when he said this. And I knew Clinton well enough to know that Clinton was probably lying and that he was well known for taking mulligans. I even asked Tiger Woods at the press conference for the Learning Center about what the Learning Center's philosophy would be on the taking of mulligans. And he very adeptly uh, sidestepped the question. And I knew at that point, okay, he's pissed about Clinton taking mulligans. And I would later find out, because Tiger would talk about this at a kid's clinic in Little Rock, Arkansas, a few months later. And I would bizarrely run into the caddy who caddied for Tiger Woods and Bill Clinton during their golf event before the opening of the Tiger Woods Learning Center. And he confirmed that Tiger was pissed off about how many mulligans Clinton was taking. So this is not a a, a Trump-centric phenomenon. Uh, There's a lot of people who do this, and for some reason, our recent presidents, although I don't think George Bush did this, uh, either of the Bushes, but uh, there's a lot of similarities between, ironically enough, Bill Clinton, the husband of the woman he defeated to be president, and Donald Trump. But there's a new book by Rick Riley, a guy who I do not like. Uh, he um, used to be very, very prominent columnist for Sports Illustrated, and he's written a new book about uh, Trump and cheating at golf. And it's apparently filled with all sorts of stories of Trump cheating. And most of them are a lot like Bill Clinton, where you're, you know, you're just taking mulligans, you're not playing by the rules, you're 
claiming a score lower than what you really have. We've talked previously about how Trump has claimed to win club championships that he didn't even technically participate in at courses where he owns uh, the club. But there's one particular story that I think is worthy of mention that goes way beyond even the Bill Clinton uh, MO for cheating at golf. And that is a story, and I'm amazed that this did not become public, to my knowledge, before this book came out. And that involves sportscaster Mike Tirico. Now, Mike Tirico is one of the major voices of golf on television. And uh, he happens to be African-American, and he's, um, he's, you know, he's now the, the face of the Olympics as well for, for NBC. And apparently he was playing golf with Trump and hit a long approach shot to a hidden green that he felt was like, apparently, one of the best shots he's ever hit in his life because Tariko's not that great a golfer. And so he's about 230 yards out, and he hits what he thinks is an amazing shot. And he gets up to the green, and the ball is nowhere near the pin. Now, he's playing with Trump. I, I, I presume that you understood that, but I didn't articulate that. So he's playing with Trump. He's playing. Tariko and Trump are playing together. He hits this shot, according to this Rick Riley book, to a hidden green. He thinks it's one of the best shots he's ever hit. He gets up there, and the ball's nowhere near the green. It's in the bunker about 50 feet from the hole, and he's confused as to how that happened. Well, the caddy told him later that the way that the ball got into the bunker was that Trump had picked up the ball 10 feet from the hole and tossed it into the sand trap. Now, I have no reason to believe that that story is fabricated. I will say, and this is so classic Trump as well, I'll guarantee if Trump ever gets asked about this, which he probably won't, he'll probably claim that he was a, it was a joke, like it was a practical joke that he was playing on Tarico. Except, of course, a practical joke you eventually cop to, right? Because that's the joke. That, so right there, it's an absurdity. It would be a jackass move, right? Doing that as a joke would be a jackass move. One, because... It takes away the thrill of having it hit the great shot. Two, replacing the ball where it's supposed to be is next to impossible because you didn't see it. And how do you trust the guy that just took your ball and put it into the bunker? But most importantly, if it was really a practical joke, Trump would have copped to it. Like after when they finished the hole or something, he was like, actually, your ball was 10 feet from the hole. Ha, ha, he, he. So assuming the story is, is true, as it appears to be, you know what that tells me? Trump isn't just a cheater. He's an asshole. He's a bad person. He's a horrible human being. Now you're going to think, uh, well, come on, John. Uh, boys will be boys. Well, that's, that's infantile at best. Infantile. Not to mention that with Tariko, who's not that great a golfer, this is not a pro golfer who's going to do this again every single day of his life. This, this was a great moment for Tariko, and he took it away. Why? Because it made, I guess, Trump feel bad, or maybe he was going to lose the hole. That is a bad human being. And that really is at the essence of why I, do, I cannot support Donald Trump. He is not worthy of the office of the presidency of the United States because he is a bad person who does not accept truth as having value. And to me, nothing else matters. All this other crap about judges. Which I, look, no one's more in favor of conservative judges than me. 
and you know whatever else supposedly he's done, which most of it is bull crap. You know, the tax cuts were unpaid for, whatever. But judges, fantastic. He's done a great job on judges. But to me, not accepting truth as having value, it's kind of like, you know, asking Mrs. Lincoln, so other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I, I, I don't care about it. No, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters because we're now living in this bizarre world where the truth has no value. And we're up is down and down is up. Right is wrong, wrong is right. We stand for nothing. We have no principles. We're, we're, we're heading towards a banana republic in that regard. And so, you know, that's to me why this kind of story has significance. But will have an impact? No. Because <laughs> it's already built into the cake when it comes to Donald Trump, which is just so sad. And I'm beginning to think a lot of his cult actually likes him because he's a bad person. I do believe that. I think they like him because he's a bad person because guess what? Many of them are bad people. Hillary was actually right when, he, when she called them deplorables because having dealt with a lot of them on social media, they are, not all, but a lot of them, I don't know what the percentage is, it, it might be more than half, are deplorable bad people, and I think they feel better about themselves knowing that a president of the United States is at least as bad, maybe worse a person as they are. I love the poorly educated. Now, as far as what's going to happen with Donald Trump and re-election, I have been saying for quite a long time that the key to understanding this situation is Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden is the person who has the best opportunity to defeat uh, Donald Trump, assuming, and this is a big assumption, he was able to get out of a Democratic primary largely unscathed. Now, I've never really gone into deep, deep detail as to why this is the case. So I might as well do this because there's a very good chance that Joe Biden is no longer going to be the front runner or maybe will even run based upon the events of the last several days and where, where I anticipate this thing going. But let me explain why Joe Biden, when this whole process began of the 2020 election, was almost a sure bet to beat Donald Trump. Here's the short version. And I have a column at Mediate, which should be out by the time you're listening to this, uh, which you should check out from my Twitter page or hopefully from freespeechbroadcasting.com. But the argument for Biden goes something like this. This election is going to be decided by only four states. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida. I have never seen a, an election that is more certain to be barring a major third party, which would of course blow up everything, but assuming a two-person race, I've never seen an election where it's more obvious that a, such a small group of states was going to determine the winner. And the reason for this is very simple: those are all states that Trump won in 2016. There are no states other than maybe New Hampshire, which doesn't really count because it's got so few electoral college votes where Trump has a chance to realistically win a state that he lost in 2016. So New Hampshire doesn't really change the equation very much, although there are, there are a couple of possible permutations where it could come into play. But for all intents and purposes, I'm ignoring New Hampshire. And frankly, I'm not sure he would win New Hampshire anyway because he had the advantage in 2016 of, of a Republican running in the Senate in New Hampshire, and it still didn't get him over the finish line, even though it was very, very close. That, that having a Republican run in the Senate, I believe, helped him greatly in Pennsylvania and Florida. They actually got more votes than he did in both cases in 2016. 
So if you presume that he's not going to win any more states than he won in 2016, because if there is, I, I don't know what that state is. I, I can't think of one. I mean, again, assuming a halfway decent Democratic candidate. And there aren't, unfortunately, there aren't that many of them in, in, in existence, which is part of the problem here. So, uh, and then you, I'm willing to presume that Trump wins all the other states. Every other state of the four that I mentioned, he's going to win again. Doesn't mean he will, but he's got a very good chance to do so. So if you make those four states, all of which Trump won by small margins in 2016, up for grabs, Democrats need to win Florida and one of the other three to make it as simple as possible. If Democrats win Florida and they win either Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania, it's over for Trump, barring some really strange set of circumstances. I mean, really strange. So of the Democratic candidates, who are those that can solidify all of those other states for 100% that I have not talked about? And who can do the best in those four states that are actually going to determine the winner of the 2020 presidential election in the Electoral College? And to me, there's zero doubt that that person would theoretically be Joe Biden if the Democrats weren't cannibalizing everybody uh, during a primary process, specifically their frontrunner or alleged frontrunner, Joe Biden, who, again, officially hasn't even gotten into the race. And there's a good reason for that. Let's just go through it. He's basically from Pennsylvania. He represented Delaware in the Senate. But uh, I, he didn't. He, I mean, he always talks about having grown up in Scranton. I mean, he's got connections to Scranton. Uh, he, you know, he's he's very much a Pennsylvania guy. Uh, they call him Amtrak Joe. Uh, you know, he takes the train every day to, to back and forth to work. Uh, you know, working class ties, or, and he has a he has a real connection to people in that part of the country, especially white working class voters the type of which that went for Trump, especially in Pennsylvania, in 2016. There's a poll out that just came out a couple days ago where Joe Biden is beating Donald Trump in Pennsylvania 55-45. That's a trouncing, all right? So if, if Biden wins Pennsylvania, then all he has to do is win. <laughs> if he wins Michigan and Wisconsin, he's in. Or if he wins Florida, he's, win, he's in. So he only has to you know, win that combination, Wisconsin and Michigan, which should be Democratic states anyway, or Florida. And in Florida, Biden plays well because, let's face it, his age in Florida is not going to be nearly the detriment that it will be other places. Because, frankly, he's younger than most people in Florida. <laughs> most people in Florida think of Joe Biden as pretty young, <laughs> only being partially facetious. The, the reality is that Trump's going to have a problem in Florida in 2020 against a halfway decent candidate. Guess what happened with all the Puerto Ricans that he pissed off thanks to the hurricane? Where'd they move to? They moved to Florida. You know they have full voting rights, folks. You know you understand that, right? You, who do you think they're going to vote for? You think they're going to vote for Donald Trump? Yeah, right. Good chance of that. And without Marco Rubio on the, on the uh, ballot, uh, I think that uh, Trump will have a big problem in Florida against a halfway decent candidate. So, in my view, Biden wins Florida. Biden wins Pennsylvania. That's ball game. It's over. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. You win Pennsylvania and Florida, Trump cannot win. And there's nobody else other than Biden who can make that play. 
Certainly not as easily as Biden can. Now, I've been saying for quite a while that I am no longer confident that Biden can get through the primary process so that he is the candidate, especially not unscathed. And that has really come to fruition over the last several days. And it's not all because of attacks on him. Some of it has been his own timidity and stupidity. He's acting like a complete wuss, apologizing for being a white male, apologizing for what happened with Anita Hill, who, by the way, he voted against. I mean, I don't know what what else. What I, I, It's amazing to me. He was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years, and he's getting attacked on somehow being against black people or against or against women I guess how is that possible how is that possible by the way one other thing to mention about those four states Wisconsin Michigan Pennsylvania and Florida all four of them voted for Joe Biden twice as vice president of the United States so the, the everyone in those state almost everyone in those states has a history of voting for for Joe Biden on a presidential ticket and the idea that somehow the eight years as Obama's VP have just been thrown out the window is is hilarious to me. And uh, I also take issue with Biden's lack of standing up for John McCain when Trump went after him. And it's clearly the reason why he did that, even though he was very good friends with John McCain, is that he's afraid of this narrative that he's friends with Republicans. Oh, my gosh, heaven forbid I be a, a white male and heaven forbid I have friends that were Republicans. Because he's trying to compete in the woke Olympics, and he's not going to be able to compete. He's not built for that. He's not a woke Olympics kind of guy. And if those are going to be the rules, Joe Biden can't get through. And now we get to the, the most recent issue in the news, which is developing even as we speak on this Sunday. And that is that Joe's now got a Me Too problem. And this is a, this is a ridiculous Me Too situation. Everybody knows that Joe Biden has a weird sense of personal physical boundaries. This is well-known, well-documented. Yes, it's a little creepy, but he comes from a very different generation. I don't know what difference it makes. No one has ever accused him of anything close to a sexual assault. Yes, there's some very weird photos and videos of him. He's a little weird. He's Uncle Joe. I'm sorry, he's not going to be perfect. There is no perfect antidote to Donald Trump. But if your your attempt here, if your your goal here is to beat Donald Trump and make sure he doesn't get reelected, Joe Biden is your guy and you got to put up with some stuff. All right? If that's if that's what your goal is. Now we're told that beating Trump is a national emergency, right? We're told that this is an imperative, a historical imperative. Well, you know, I think about it in terms of my children. If, if I got a, a child in a burning building, and my only child's in a burning building, and I go in to save my child from that building, am I going to take some extra time to make sure I get the cash that I hid underneath my mattress before I get my child out of the burning building? No. I'm going to get my child out of the damn burning building. That's going to be the only priority. And maybe I'm, you know, some stuff I could have saved along the way is going to get lost. Because I prioritize. Similarly, if my child needs emergency surgery and I'm rushing them to the hospital, do I take the scenic route? Or do I just go right to the goddamn hospital? 
Well, Democrats want to take the scenic route. Oh, well, Joe's nice and all, but let's let's check out some of these other people because they seem fun. Well, I thought the imperative here was historical, and this was an emergency. But I digress. So now Joe has had an actual allegation made against him by a woman by the name of Lucy Flores. And I got to tell you, this Lucy Flores story sounds an awful lot. It's unbelievably similar to the Leanne Tweeden-Al Franken situation, which I will go to my death, barring new information, believing was total bullcrap. Lucy Flores, let's take a look who Lucy Flores is, a former Nevada assemblywoman. Now, it's important to point out that Lucy Flores, and although to my knowledge, the media is not doing this. She did an interview on CNN today, and I have not been able to confirm that Jake Tapper, who I like and who I'm in communication with on a fairly regular basis, so I would be surprised if Jake did not ask her, but I've not been able to confirm that he did, asked her about the fact that in 2016, she cut a commercial for Bernie Sanders, and that she's on the board of Bernie Sanders' political action committee. All right? So right there, right there, she could be totally telling the truth, but without proof of it, in a rational world, the media would go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Wait a minute. Holy conflict of interest, Batman. All right? So we... (laughs) But that hasn't happened, apparently. There's no holding back. And what's Lucy Flores' allegation? Joe Biden sniffed my hair and gave me an awkward kiss. Well, coming to Nevada to help me win an election. So here he is, Vice President of the United States. He's coming to campaign for her. And her complaint many years later, there's no proof of this, even if it happened. But wait, wait, I'm willing to stipulate it. That sounds like Joe. Probably happened. But who cares? This is not a sexual assault. This is not remotely a sexual assault. And why is this happening? Why is what I'm willing to stipulate she's telling the truth. This is clearly happening for one reason and one reason only because she is opening up the door for now this being the narrative and for all these other women who I'm sure Joe Biden has had similar experiences with to come out and cut him off at the knees before he actually becomes the legitimate front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination. And, of course, Bernie Sanders has a massive incentive for that to happen. Because if Joe's out, guess who's the new frontrunner? Bernie Sanders. Well, guess who also wants that to happen? Donald freaking Trump! Because Donald Trump would love to run against Bernie Sanders. He would clobber Bernie Sanders. I know some of the polls indicate that's not the case. I don't believe the American public knows who Bernie Sanders is. And so you want so do you want to make the 2020 election about socialism or do you want to make it about an up or down on Donald Trump? If you want to make it about socialism, go ahead and nominate Bernie freaking Sanders. Good luck with that. So so Joe Biden is getting the Al Franken treatment over something that is nonsensical, unproven and should be irrelevant to what we're facing here. We're facing four more years of Donald Trump, and you want to de- you want to disqualify Joe Biden because he sniffed a woman's hair and gave her an awkward kiss? You know what, Democrats? If you do that, you deserve what you get. And here's what you're going to get: you're going to get six more years 
of this bull crap of Donald Trump. And you know what? Maybe you deserve it if that's what you're stupid enough to do. So check out my column on uh, Joe Biden and why it is that uh, he should be the nominee but likely will not be the nominee. And this Lucy Flores thing, I think, is is probably just the beginning, and it could be the beginning of the end of Joe Biden. Uh, I'm not certain as to how this is all going to play out politically, but I, I, it's hard for me to imagine whether it's this week, this month, next month, or a year from now. It's hard for me to see how Joe gets through the woke Olympics without two broken legs. And you know what? Part of me thinks that for for his own personal good, he should just uh, not run. It's it would be bad for the country. It would be bad for the Democratic Party for him not to run. At least give Democrats that option, that safety valve option of give us four years to get out of this mess. But for him as a person, if I was a friend of Joe Biden, I'd say, you know, Joe, you don't need this. You don't deserve this. You don't need this. And I don't even like Joe Biden. Let's be clear. <laughs> I think he's a gaff machine. I think he's weird. I don't agree with him politically. But he would have beaten Donald Trump. He would have beaten Donald Trump if Democrats were smart enough to get it behind him. But they're not. And so with that, uh, I'm adjusting the percentages as we finish this edition of the Individual One podcast. I'm going to keep the percentage of Donald Trump failing to finish his first term in office at 4%. And that might be generous. It could be less than 4%. And I now officially, for the first time in the history of the Individual One podcast, I am putting his re-election number at exactly 50%. It might actually be 51. Gun to my head. Gun to my head. For the first time since we started this podcast, gun to my head, if I had to choose it with my life on the line, I'd have to say Donald Trump will get reelected. But I'm going to officially put it at 50% right now, and we'll see where it goes from here. That'll do it for this edition, episode number 17 of the Individual One Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Join us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. Until Wednesday morning, Los Angeles time, that's this edition of the Individual One Podcast. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. <laughs>